Hey there, and welcome to Cosmologies. Join us as we explore the intersections of science, spirit, and the human experience. Are you curious? Let's go. Hi everyone, welcome to Cosmologies, a place where we explore science, storytelling, spirituality, and more. So last month we spoke with Sam Rowe all about the spring equinox, the pagan holiday Ostara, queer community, and herbalism. And this month we're continuing our exploration of spring by turning our eyes to the skies. And we also get to keep talking about spring holidays and queer community because our special guest this week is trans seminarian Mac Buff. It's a super juicy interview and a kind of long one where we'll talk all about queer Christianity, identity, protest, healing religious trauma, Easter, and more. But what does that have to do with the cosmos or the age of Pisces? Stick around and all of the Pisces will fall into place. I know, that was a terrible pun. But let's get exploring. In the late 1960s, Hair, the American tribal love rock musical, made its debut at the New Public Theater in New York City. The production was wild, messy, and provocative, and told the loose story of a group of young people covering themes of hippie counterculture, sexual revolution, anti-Vietnam war, environmental outrage, drugs, and racism. The show's origins were influenced by real hippies and activists, experimental improv theater techniques, and work with a Grammy award-winning musician. And even though some of the show's songs were critiqued as laundry lists and one-third music, we still wound up with hit songs Aquarius, The Flesh Failures, and Let the Sunshine In. The cast album soared in popularity and was even covered by a vocal group, The Fifth Dimension. And that's where we start today. Not with my glaring theater degree wanting to be useful, but with the song Aquarius, which famously states, this is the dawning of the age of Aquarius. But was it really? And what does that mean? The ages of man, as they're called, are big astrological concepts and can be a little bit tricky to understand. But this month, I'm going to try to break it down for you. And if at any point things get too confusing, feel free to replay as many times as you like, or wait until something else grabs you, or just fast forward to the interview if you want. <laughs> if you're new to these concepts, I also recommend downloading a simple stargazing app such as Stellarium. A little tool can go a long way in visualization. So let's start simple. You're probably familiar with the 12 signs of the zodiac, or at least a little bit. Aries, Taurus, Gemini, Cancer, etc. And you're also probably aware that these symbols roughly correspond with actual constellations in the sky. Now, let's put astrology aside for just a moment and look at the astronomy. These corresponding constellations are actually special in astronomy as well, because they lay along an imaginary line across the sky called the ecliptic, 
and we can begin by thinking of this line as the path that the sun appears to take across the sky throughout the year. Imagine yourself standing in a big room with a lamp in the center. Now imagine that every wall of the room has a different picture painted on it. If you face away from the lamp, you're looking at one picture. For the sake of this experiment, let's say that it's a picture of Kermit sipping tea. If you turn toward the center to face the lamp, you'll see a different picture on the opposite wall behind the lamp. Let's say that this is a poster of David Bowie in the labyrinth. If you can't tell, I've been on a bit of a Muppet kick. Anyway, it might be kind of hard to see the David Bowie poster with the bright lamp shining in your eyes. In this example, you're the Earth, the lamp is the sun, and the pictures on the wall are the constellations, groups of far-off stars. If the part of the Earth you're standing on is looking away from the sun, so if it's nighttime, you'll see a constellation of stars. That's the Kermit constellation. But when you look back the other way at the lamp, or daytime, you should be looking at the other picture, or the Bowie constellation, but the light from the sun in the atmosphere makes it a little bit impossible to see. Let's add another layer here. What if you walked around the lamp to the other side of the room? What would you see? Well, at nighttime, facing away from the lamp, you should see the Bowie poster, and during the day, the lamp would be in front of the Kermit poster. This is why we see different stars during different times of the year, because the Earth is constantly orbiting the sun. And if we have a bunch of other posters at lamp and eye level in this room and keep walking around the lamp, the lamp should appear to be in front of each one throughout the circle. This is essentially what our zodiac constellations are. Throughout the year, the sun appears to be in front of each one of these constellations. Of course, there are only 12, or arguably 13, zodiac constellations, but we can get into that another day, and there are 88 constellations in our sky. So, in order to really complete our visual metaphor, we have to imagine that there are also posters all over the ceiling and the floor and at every other level, but this is why these constellations are important astronomically. We also have to remember that astrology co-evolved with astronomy, and in astrology, historically, whichever constellation the sun was in front of at the time you were born was said to be your sun sign. And likewise, the year is split up into 12 zodiac seasons. For example, this episode comes out on April 11th, which is about two-thirds of the way through Aries season. But if you were to pull up a stargazing app on your phone, you might be surprised by what you find. A careful observer will see that the sun is almost a whole month off of where it's supposed to be in the sky. But never fear, there's actually a really good explanation for this. Now, last episode, we talked about how the Earth spins on its axis, and this axis is tilted at about 23 and a half degrees, which creates the seasons on Earth. But not many people know that Earth's axis actually has a wobble. That's right. Just like a toy top falling out of a spin, the Earth leans, but that lean also slowly spins in a circle. And while the amount of tilt or lean doesn't change too dramatically, the direction it's leaning really does. 
and it takes 26,000 years for the Earth's axis to make one complete circular wobble. But wait, you might be saying, that can't be right. Just last month, you told us that the Earth's axis always points towards the North Star. And I'm sorry to tell you that while that wasn't an all-out lie, it was a huge oversimplification. Because that's kind of how learning science works. Things are almost always more complicated than the level at which we currently understand them, and it's up to us to keep digging. But I digress. What's important here is that our North Star, Polaris, the Pole Star, has not always been the Pole Star, and will not always be the Pole Star in the future. In fact, even right now, it's not directly above the North Pole, and is in the very long process of shifting. And, as you can imagine, this has an effect on the way we see the rest of our stars as well. And this slow, circular motion is called precession, or more fully, the precession of the equinoxes. Notably, this is precession, spelled P-R-E, not procession, P-R-O, as in preceding, or coming before. So, basically, Thousands of years ago, when astronomy and astrology were co-evolving, the sun would rise in front of the constellation of Aries on the spring equinox. But as time went on and the Earth's axis began to point in a different direction, the sun would appear to rise in a slightly different spot with respect to Aries every year. It seemed that Aries was creeping backwards and the sun moving forwards every year until the sun was in front of the constellation Pisces. Now, this can be more than a bit confusing, because in our annual sky, the motion of the sun throughout the months goes Aries, then Taurus, then Gemini. And if the Earth were slowly wobbling in the other direction, we would have a procession of the equinoxes and the sun would have been slowly moving into Taurus each spring, but it isn't. And this wobble has some interesting side effects. For one, it's the main schism between Western and Eastern astrology. Most Chinese and Vedic astrologers use what's called sidereal astrology and actually use the current constellations in the sky to mark the heavenly bodies. But most Western astrologers use what's called tropical astrology. They've determined that wherever the sun rises on the spring equinox is the beginning of the astrological year, and each sign of the zodiac occupies the next 30 degrees of the sky, regardless of what's actually seen. Both systems have their merits. The other big thing that comes out of this wobble is the astrological ages of man. And yes, we're finally ready to talk about it. Basically, it takes approximately 2,000 years for the sun to appear in front of a new sign on the equinox. So, each 2,000-ish year period is labeled an astrological age. And for the last 2,000-ish years, we've been in the age of Pisces. So if you're still with me, if we travel another sign back in this pre-session, it will soon be the age of Aquarius. From a purely astronomical perspective, this actually does make sense, just like I promised it would. So why are the counterculture hippies of hair singing about the age of Aquarius? 
and if they were singing about this in 1968, are we finally in the age of Aquarius now? Both good questions. Let's tackle them one at a time. First, what is the pop culture appeal of this difficult cosmic concept? The members of the self-described tribe in the musical sing about harmony and understanding, sympathy and trust abounding, and the mind's true liberation. This is a bit of a celebration and a hopeful prediction for the next 2,000 years based on the traits often ascribed to the Aquarius zodiac sign, such as independence, progressive values, electricity, heady intellectualism, and a community of help. And just like daily astrology, this prediction comes from a long history of fascinating interpretations, coincidences, and symbology associated with the society, culture, religion, and politics of each period up until this point. But as we make the transition from astronomical topics into astrological ones, I'll go ahead and remind listeners that the ideas I'm presenting on are very real to some people and entirely baseless for others. It's always important to have a healthy dose of skepticism and to further research whatever interests you, but it's also always fascinating to study what other people throughout time and place believe. So, with whatever lens you like, let's explore some of the symbology of the astrological ages. The first age astrologers and archaeoastronomers really look at is the Leonian Age, or age when the sun appeared in front of Leo on the equinox, around 10,000 or 10,500 BC, depending on who you ask. There's no recorded writing from this period, despite some cool artifacts that we found in caves, so nobody really knows what was going on in society. However, we do know that it was the end of the last period of glaciation and that the Earth saw a 300-foot rise in sea levels. The main symbology here is that Leo is a fire sign commonly associated with the sun, and this was an age of literal global warming. That's followed by the age of Cancer, a water sign, which is astrologically ruled by the moon and is associated with motherhood, nurturing, and protecting. It's associated with the nomadic people settling into a farming lifestyle and is a mythological beginning of civilization. We also see evidence of mother goddess figures in the Fertile Crescent. Somewhere between 6,500 and 6,000 BC, we transition to the age of Gemini, the Air Twins, a sign all about energetic exchange and multiplicity. And, in fact, our first evidence of writing appears in this age and is the foundation of a lot of bustling trade. Pantheons of multiple gods also start appearing around this time. Of course, with writing, we start to have a lot more remembered knowledge to be able to base these parallels off of. Then, if you're following along, between 4500 and 4000 BC, we transition to the age of Taurus, the bull earthy in nature. It coincides with the building of the pyramids and sees more than a few bull-worshipping cults, such as the worship of Apis in Egypt and Marduk in Babylon. The end of the Age of Taurus is perhaps even more notable, as around the transition point there's a lot of bull-killing symbology. In the Epic of Gilgamesh, written around 2000 BC, 
the hero slays the bull of heaven. And when Moses descends from the mountain with the Ten Commandments at the end of the age of Taurus, he condemns the people who have been worshipping a golden bull calf and essentially kills the age of the bull. The mystery cult of Mithras also depicts their sun god slaying a bull with copious astronomical imagery. But because this was an initiatory tradition, we probably won't ever know the real story behind this. All this bull slaying is the beginning of the age of Ares, the fiery ram. And even though Ares the ram and Ares the Greek god of war are not the same, this is still considered an age of war and fire. Oh, Ares. Anyway, war isn't exactly new at this point in time, but it was really an age of expanding empires, such as China, Persia, Greece, and Rome. The Roman state religion also calls their people the Sons of Mars, the planet that rules this sign, and the Roman god of war. It might also be associated with the battering ram, or the sacrifice of Abraham's ram. It's also a huge time for monotheism, with the ram symbolizing many gods appearing as one godhead. The Egyptians have a few goes at a supreme sun god, and Judaism gets really big with Moses as a catalytic figure and the writing of the Torah. And finally, around the transition between BCE and CE, or from BC to AD, uh, we have the age of Pisces, the fish. And this is largely considered to be the age of Jesus, Christianity, and the pervasive power of its churches and institutions. From the beginning, Jesus is either a fisherman himself or hanging out with a lot of fishermen and asks his apostles if they wouldn't rather be fishers of men. Early Christians identified themselves with fish symbology as the Greek word ichthys, for fish, reads as an acrostic symbol, Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior. Jesus is also said to embody the traits of a Pisces as an empathetic visionary. Of course, the last 2,000 years probably haven't all been the way that Jesus might have envisioned them, and some of the churches bearing his name have a lot to answer for. And I am not a Christian scholar, which is why I have invited our guest to speak with us today about the age of Pisces. But I'm getting ahead of myself here. We still have to answer one more question. If each astrological age is about 2,000 years, isn't the age of Pisces over? To which the answer is maybe, or maybe not. It depends on who you ask. You would think it would be relatively easy to look up in the sky and see, are we in the age of Aquarius yet? But it turns out it's not so simple. Scientists today use the 88 codified constellations with exact boundaries to break the sky into identifiable chunks, so technically all of the constellations do have borders. However, these distinctions are extremely modern and are completely divorced from astrology. And among astrologers, there isn't really any agreement on where these things start or end. Western tropical scholars might just continue to divide the sky around the ecliptic into 12 30-degree sections like they already do with the zodiac to have a fairly reliable period. But if there are no real borders, where does that first period start? 
and eastern sidereal scholars run into similar problems except each sign is a different size. So you wind up having these really long transition periods where some folks say you've moved on and others say you haven't until you're solidly into the next sign. So in the 1960s we begin singing about the age of Aquarius. And many astronomers today believe that the grand conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn in Aquarius this last winter marked the official entrance to the Aquarian age. And others still say that we won't be there officially for another three to five hundred years. To me, it looks like we're still technically in the Piscean age. But I'll leave it up to you to pull up a stargazing app and make your own decisions. I do recommend using an app though because gazing directly at the sun is not something you should ever do and you won't be able to see the background stars in the daytime from Earth anyway, except right after sunset and right before dawn. But an app gives a much fuller picture. There's definitely a whole lot more to talk about here and a lot of questions we haven't answered, like how long have we known about these astrological ages and the precession of the equinoxes? When did the tropical zodiac, with the equinox sun in Aries, align with the actual age of Aries? And how much of this is just people doing what people do best and only finding symbols in these ages after the fact because we're looking for them? These are all really fascinating questions with really messy answers, and we don't have any more time to go into them today, but I really encourage you to look into them if you're interested. And if you are using a stargazing app, I encourage you to try adjusting your date to be several thousand years in the future or past on the spring equinox, around March 21st. Look for the sun and look for constellations, and if there's a setting for the ecliptic, try turning that on. I might also try to post some photos or video of this later in the month. So now, to speak with us a bit further about the age of Pisces, I'd like to go ahead and formally introduce you to our very special guest of the month. As a quick reminder, neither I nor any of my guests on this podcast have any or all of the answers. We are all students in different places on our learning journeys. My guest today is Mac Buff. Mac is a queer, trans feminist, a hiker, and a journeyman theologian. They are the only child of a Presbyterian minister. Their religious background includes work with a variety of churches in Northern Ireland, Mississippi, and the Pacific Northwest. They hold a master's degree in elementary education and work at an art museum while pursuing a seminary degree. Mac lives in the Pacific Northwest with their wife and very spoiled dog. Their work can be found online at religiousqueries.com, spelled Q-U-E-E-R-I-E-S. Well, hi, Mac. I'm so excited to have you on the show today. Welcome. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Yay. All right. Well, let's go ahead and just kick it off here. Um, you run a blog. Uh, a blog called Religious Queries, um, and it's a fantastic little blog. You've only had it up for a, a little bit here, and you have this really lovely blog post that really encapsulates like your experience with uh, religion and the church, and I'm wondering if you can share some of that story with us here today. Sure. Uh, shout out to my friend Candace for coming up with the name for the blog. It's, it's great. <laughs> <laughs> we love puns. <laughs> mm -hmm. So 
I grew up in the church. And when I say that, I mean it literally because my father is a Presbyterian minister. Mm-hmm. So I spent my childhood running around in um, sanctuaries and climbing up pulpit steps and sliding back down them and <laughs> uh, learning how to do a lot of yard work in church uh, landscaping and cleanup days. And uh, so that has been a part of my life from the very beginning. But I also have spent a lot of time as like a young adult in church world. I went to a conservative Christian university and I worked in the church after and during. Um, So I have experience in a lot of different uh, denominations and faith traditions around the country and in other countries as well. And I, for, I don't know, I was like 19 when I first thought I might be interested in ordained ministry or some sort of um, intentional ministry as a career path and explored that a lot in college and after. Uh, Then I was working at an Episcopal cathedral as the uh, children's ministries coordinator. And my priest gave me some very good advice that I should take a year off of church. And I was like, what? I'm not going to do that. That's silly. (laughs) (laughs) Her point essentially was, you've spent your whole life in the church. This is just like all that you know. Go experience something else and see if the church is really where you want to be. So I kind of accidentally did that because I was tired of living with my parents. And so I moved out and I moved to San Diego (laughs) and I needed a job and I got a job that wasn't in the church. Uh, So... I spent some time not with the church, which was also when I came out and started exploring like sexuality and gender. And that made the church a whole lot more complicated very, very quickly. <laughs> so, um, I think through that process, I came to realize a lot more of the problematic nature of the church that I had just like grown up in it and hadn't ever seen it from other perspectives. But having come out suddenly feeling the disconnect between my own spirituality and my own experience of the world and of God and what the church was saying made me sort of question, do I want to be involved with this institution anyway? Like, is this, is this where I want to be? Mm -hmm. And how do I want to wrestle with all of the stuff that Christianity comes with that like Christianity in the U S especially has a, history of colonialism and of white supremacy as well as like anti-queer and anti-trans rhetoric and there's just there's a lot of stuff that if you're aligning yourself with the institutional church you gotta either align yourself with it no thank you or (laughs) you have to wrestle with it and figure out how you fit into that narrative and that story um so that took me a while to figure out like do i do i care do I want to do this? Is it worth my time and energy to work within a system that has so much damage, both historically and right now that it has done and is dealing. Um, But ultimately the answer for me was that I felt that was where I was called to be. And Mm. I've had a number of experiences throughout my life of feeling like, this is where I'm best suited of um, watching a pastor 
preside over communion and hearing a little voice in the back of my head that says that's going to be you someday or um just like feeling at peace more than any other kind of peace that i've felt thinking about going into a church and working with them to like tell my story as a queer person or you know envisioning myself in the future a more full version of myself in a church leading a group um had those moments of like visions into the future that felt like this is actually the path that I want to go down. And then that just means I have to figure out how to deal with all this other crap. Yeah. (laughs) That's, that's definitely, you know, I've known you for a while, (laughs) not throughout your whole journey, obviously, but you know, it's definitely something that I've seen you come back to. (laughs) Yeah. So Speaking of which, can you tell us a little bit more about the activism work that you're doing to make churches and the world safer for queer and trans folk? I mean, I think I kind of came into that activism by accident. I just don't shut up. That's really my, like, <laughs> I walk into a space and then I see a problem and I don't shut up about it. Um, so... <laughs> And I think it it largely came first out of my own experiences, right? Like, it's not, like, I don't shut up about a lot of things. But in this particular case, I don't shut up about my need to feel safe in a place. Yeah. And so, I mean, you've seen that play out in our professional lives, Mm -hmm. where uh, I sort of accidentally became an advocate for LGBTQ folks in the museum world and museum education specifically and that started out with me just being like yo i'm here pay attention here's what i need (laughs) and then it turned into me like writing articles and chapters and books that are like getting published nationally and like contributing to uh larger conversations in the field about trans inclusion what books have you written chapters in? <laughs> so I have a, a book or a chapter in a book that's kind of come out, I think, later this year called, oh gosh, I'm going to get the title wrong. It's about museum education in the 21st century. I'll send you the title maybe. or I'll Yeah, and maybe a link to it that we can put in the show notes or something. That's awesome. I didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, like it just started with me being like, I'm here and then through that process of trying to figure out how to navigate inclusion in the workplace, I gained a lot more skills that I felt like I could then take into other parts of my life. Right. So I probably wouldn't have started from that place in the church if I hadn't already started from that place in my professional life. But then when um, Trump was elected, I joined an activist group in Tacoma and met a couple of people, one of whom is also queer that I got to be pretty close with. And then um, we sort of hatched this plan of trying to help like moderate activist organizations and churches be better at trans inclusion and queer inclusion. Mm -hmm. Um, So we ended up like putting together this panel that was me and this other queer person and a straight cisgender woman who comes out of evangelical conservative Christianity, but like doesn't isn't in that world anymore. And the three of us started going around to like 
organizations and churches and being like essentially telling our story be like there are some trans people (laughs) (laughs) let's like talk about our experiences and that was linked to some one of the bathroom bills that's come through washington in the last few years uh with the idea being essentially that political organizations and churches have a lot of clout in how like legislation gets passed right like the a lot of people vote according to how they're told to vote at church or how their churches imply that they should vote right and so church is more queer inclusive and trans welcoming than our theory is the bathroom bills are less likely to succeed like anti-trans bills are less likely to succeed because then you'll have people whose churches are telling them implicitly or explicitly to vote against it um and also like political organizations if they have a better understanding of trans folks and trans lives and needs then they'll be able to better advocate for what will make a more inclusive society so we basically just did the same thing of like here we are (laughs) this is is what's going on for us Uh, i've also done that sort of independently at other churches as well or in collection with other folks not just that core original group but that's where it comes from largely is my own experiences and me being able to speak from like here's how i move through the world here's what i've experienced here's what my theology is around queer and trans folks and like and we have some research that says that like deep personal conversations with actual queer folks is something that changes people's minds both as voters and as like humans who have to move through the world and make decisions about their lives right so this work that you're doing, it's kind of, it kind of pulled you back into the church, you would, would you say? Yeah, pretty, pretty definitely. <laughs> <laughs> to the point where now, can you talk a little bit about what you're doing now? <laughs> so uh, I decided that I wanted to be an ordained minister after all. Uh, so I'm <laughs> going back to seminary um, and getting a master's in divinity degree, which is what you would need to be an ordained minister in the faith tradition that i'm pursuing ordination in and your blog can you tell us a bit about that (laughs) that's a good point yes and also that um and so my blog religious queries uh q-u-e-e-r-i-e-s because wordplay um (laughs) is sort of a space for my thoughts a lot of which are coming like directly out of seminary assignments let's be honest uh Mm -hmm. to kind of get out into the world and for me to think about how this translates into sort of broader life or people outside the church or outside traditional church spaces. Uh, There is also though a uh, group that I'm like sort of co-leading in the Tacoma area of like LGBTQ folks who have religious history or background. So some of whom are currently religious and some are not anymore. Um, and we just like realized I had a bunch of independent conversations with friends about like how the church has impacted our lives and our like the way that we think of ourselves for better and for worse. And then I basically was like, I'm having this conversation with five different people. Let's have it together. <laughs> and a few of my other friends were saying the same thing, like, but we're all talking about the same things. Let's come together. And so we started this um, 
group, which actually is where religious queries originally came from. That was the name of the group. Oh, fantastic. Um, <laughs> and uh, just to talk about like, how has religion impacted you? Like, what are you still processing through from like purity culture or how your family's uh, engaged with holidays or like, what are you hanging on to? What are you like still working through? What feels good and what feels like terrible about what you learned about the world through church? Yeah. Which has also been a really fun space to to have so many different perspectives, like different religious traditions and different like current understandings or faiths. So we've got like me and then we also have a bunch of people who have like totally turned their back on the church and like left there they consider themselves like atheist they don't want anything to do with religion but they still have a lot of this stuff that they learned as a kid right that they're working through i feel like a lot of that is relevant for especially people in like the queer community but also just for everyone i mean there's a lot of stuff that people have learned if not even directly through church through a country that highly values church um and the values that have spread because of that and and not even specifically christian like bible values but uh fabricated values over time yeah i mean it's my hypothesis that every lgbtq person in the u.s has some form of religious trauma regardless of whether they've ever stepped foot in a church just Mm -hmm. because of the way that the Christian right and just sort of our culture in general use religious ideas and um, religious images and the sort of overarching narrative of Christianity in how we approach LGBTQ issues. Yeah. And like, you just can't get away from that. Even if you've never stepped foot in a church, you still have this idea that God thinks queer people are sinful which is like wrong, <laughs> it's wrong. Let's say that, <laughs> but it's like in our culture to the point that you don't have to have ever talked to a pastor to have heard that. Yeah. I mean, I did not grow up in the church, but grew up in a family that had been in the church. And that was definitely, um, that's, <laughs> that's definitely something that I uh, soaked up as well. <laughs> How do you even begin to re- to heal your own religious trauma? I mean, I think that for me, theological study is part of it, that I want to know other ways of seeing the scriptures that have been used to harm, whether that be like explicitly LGBTQ or just like the scriptures that get used to say that like people are sinful and we are bad and God had to kill God's son because we're so terrible, right? Like there are other ways to see all of those. Mm -hmm. And for me that like, I am a very intellectual person that has always been the case. And so I want to like have some intellectual healing of like their, here's another way to look at that. Here's another way to process through that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's also been very helpful for me to get some of that healing, like down into my body with other spiritual practices that are like personal spiritual practices, or maybe like stepping closer to the bounds of what's traditional Christianity and like exploring other ways that other faiths 
have tr- spiritual practices and what what can we learn from other ways of experiencing the world or even just like getting out into nature and spending some time where we can be like me and the trees and the divine and not any of that stuff that comes with institutional <laughs> religion. Uh, I think all of those can be super helpful. You are speaking my language. <laughs> <laughs> I know you know that about me and trees, but in cosmologies in general, that's that's one of the things we're aiming to do is connect all these things. Trees are our friends. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And also just that whole, that mind, body, spirit connection that sounds really woo woo, but also is like very important because, you know, we're, we're physical bodies engaging in this world. Yeah. I think that's one something that's really interesting about Christianity is that, um, Christianity has this really strong tradition of like mind-body dualism that comes largely from Greek philosophy and just kind of got imported into Christianity. Oh, this right. idea that like <laughs> our rational selves are uh, better than our like physical selves, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and it comes in in Christianity, like especially in the last 20 or 30 years with purity culture, you see that even more of this idea that like our bodies are inherently sinful and they just want to have sex all the time. And you have to like tamp that down and not let your body feel the things that it wants to feel or want the things that it wants because like your mind and your spirit have to like control your body. That's a narrative that we get a lot in Christianity, like throughout all of Christianity and it's just sort of come up in a different way with purity culture in the last few years. And at the same time, Jesus is like the version of God that we talk about the most in Christianity, right? Like the, it's like the touchstone for our faith tradition. And Jesus was a person with a body. Like that was the point. Yeah. (laughs) The point of Jesus was for God to have a body. And so our, our, faith tradition is incredibly embodied if you like get down to the root of it but there's all of this like mind body dualism that gets layered on top thanks to our church fathers in the like 400s who had all of this like other greek philosophy that they were layering in and bringing in from outside and that just like stuck so we have this sense that we're disconnected from our bodies and then getting back out into nature and like re-experiencing our bodies in community with other creatures, human or otherwise, can help us like ground back into the embodiment that, that we were like meant. Like the Bible tells us that we were created in the image of God, which means like these bodies, something about them has the image of God in them. <laughs> and there's lots of argument about like, what does that mean? What is the image of God in humans? Uh, but fundamentally, like, God created us, our bodies, and said, like, this is my image and this is good. Yeah. I think it's interesting that there are, in a lot of other faith cultures, very explicitly body connections as well. Um, the the ways in which your body really is going through all the things that it is and really does feel the way that it does. And I feel like I've mostly in what I've experienced of Christianity um, outside of the whole Jesus had a body thing is like, well, we don't really talk about that. We kind of lock that away. Uh So I think 
immersing yourself in or at least studying other cultures and other faith traditions can probably be, as you said, very helpful. Mm-hmm. Speaking of uh, Jesus here, um, we're doing our interview about a week before Easter, but by the time this episode comes out, it will already be about a week over. So we're kind of right hovering in that period. Um, is there anything queer that we can embrace in the story of Easter? And I, which is also very, very much about having a body. <laughs> right, right. Um, I mean, I think there's a lot to say about the narrative of Jesus's death and resurrection that we get in. So it's Palm Sunday today, which is the week before Easter. We remember the the part of the story where Jesus comes into Jerusalem sort of through the back door on a donkey. (laughs) And um, the folks at Queer Theology, which is an awesome organization, uh, had their podcast this morning about... um, Palm Sunday as a protest march. Ooh. Right. So uh, the part of the story that we don't hear as much is that right before Passover, so Easter and Passover sort of coincide. Yeah. Um, right before Passover, Pontius Pilate, the like Roman governor of the area, rides into like every year rides into jerusalem in this big military procession essentially to remind any jews who might be thinking of revolting during their holy period who's in control so like passover is all about like escaping from oppression and like there's a piece of the the roman government that's like oh this could be a problem let's remind them that like they live in our empire and so Pontius Pilate has this big old military parade he comes in on a fancy horse and he's got all these soldiers and he's like we're here and Jesus the same day comes into the the city through a different gate on a donkey and he's like making a very clear statement that like Pontius Pilate isn't the only person in control here and he like here's another version of the world we could live in not this like big fancy militaristic empire but the version where your leader borrows somebody else's donkey because <laughs> he doesn't have anything and like comes in among the people oh my god so that starts our easter story and then uh he goes and flips some tables and like makes people (laughs) mad and they and the version of the world that he is espousing is something that uh the folks in power don't want to see and so they kill him and like in a way that is brutal and reinforces the power of the state and then that's not the end of the story right and then he's resurrected and there can be a tendency to disconnect those two like last parts of the story that like Jesus dies. Okay. That's done with now we have this resurrected Jesus. But uh, as the liberation theologian, John Sabrino reminds us, the risen Christ is the crucified Christ. We can't get to the resurrection without going through the suffering. Mm -hmm. So I think there's, there's a lot of, 
beauty in that and i see the parallels to queer experience and i think like maybe of the pride parades right so like you have this awesome pride parade it's lots of fun and the first pride was a riot right and you had like you had to get through that oppression and that like very real like physical mental emotional harm of an oppressive state in order to get to this celebration of queer identity absolutely I, when you were speaking that first bit about riding in on the donkey i was just thinking of like community mutual aid and just like the kind of community that i keep hearing all of us talk about of like why why are we still doing these things to this crazy system when we could really just all be helping each other out <laughs> yeah and then that last bit you know i think um I'm sure many people have drawn these parallels before, but I have been to maybe not very many Easter services in my lifetime, um, <laughs> having not really been totally raised in the church. But, you know, I think that's a, a great metaphor for almost every major transition that you're going to go through is a lot of them are really painful, but you have to go through it to find the next version of yourself. Yeah. So I think that another thing uh, about our Eastern narrative is the idea of why did Jesus die? So I kind of alluded it to it earlier, right? That we have these theologies that say people are so bad that God had to kill God's own son in order to make us okay enough that God can engage with us again. And that's just one version of theories of atonement there are a bunch of different theories of atonement but that deal with both like why did jesus die and also like how do we be in right relationship with god and so one version of theories of atonement says that like the death and resurrection isn't actually essential for atonement that was a product of jesus's life so we talk about jesus as being this like radical putting out a different version of the world from what the state had and then that scares the people in power and they kill him and so what's really important about jesus's ministry isn't this like violent death at the hands of the state but everything that led up to that right that jesus is like point of being on earth was to show us this better way of being in community and that was so scary to people in power that they killed him and then the resurrection is like a reminder that we continue this way of living in the world and and there's also other versions that say like rather than jesus being like the scapegoat for humanity like all of our sins get put on jesus and then he dies and then that's like the sacrifice that god requires there are other versions that look as like um jesus's death and resurrection is a sign of his victory and not a sign of our sinfulness and so just wanted to like add in that there are other ways to view this than saying jesus died for our sins and then rose again right even metaphorically that's really powerful of you know even though our figurehead has died the movement continues 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, which I feel like is definitely a part of protest culture. <laughs> right. Um, and I think that too, the there you don't have to necessarily believe in the literal story to see the the truth or the beauty in it. You you said that too. Like the, even metaphorically, we can look at what does this say about this movement? What does this say about how people understand the divine? Yeah. I love that. Even if you can't like wrap your minds around a literal resurrection. Yeah. I um, work a lot in, in pagan communities and there's so many different types of pagans out there that so many people work on very different levels with their deities. They'll say, Oh, this is just archetypal or this is just, you know, um, a metaphor or this is like something that I am inside or this is an actual literal physical God that really existed that we're, we're praying to. And so I'm, I'm definitely used to approaching religions in general from two different points of view of like, okay, what is it literally saying? And then what is it metaphorically saying? And um, I think a lot of people who study religion also operate uh, on this level, even if they do believe the, the physical aspect of what really happened. Um, there's, always like that's poetry that's interpreting something that happened or is happening and also putting it on another level so um that definitely helps me to come at the story there um for trying to understand you know what it means i also wanted to speak to something that you wrote about in your blog about uh jesus which um I am primarily <laughs> aware of the Jesus story through Jesus Christ Superstar. <laughs> being an ex-theater person, well, still be, being a theater person, I guess we can say. Everyone's kind of an ex-theater person right now in the time of COVID. <laughs> um, but uh, having having been exposed to this show many times, uh, mostly because there's a, a very... <laughs> fun house show that happens in Seattle every year called Jesus Christ Ukulele Star. Um, It's just one man (laughs) on a ukulele doing the entire show with some guests in a house uh, with like 40 or 50, 60, 70 maybe of Seattle's weirdest queers (laughs) and other associated fringe theater people. So I'm 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 very <laughs> well acquainted with the part anyway. Getting back to the story here uh, of the the show where you know everyone's like, Jesus, is this what you are? And are you the son of God? Are you all these things? And he's like, I'm I am what you say I am. Um, and you wrote kind of a blog post that was kind of a little bit about this. I'm hoping that maybe you can elaborate a little bit on that. Yeah, I think that I actually had a conversation with one of my seminary colleagues about this a couple of days ago of this idea of where do we get the idea that Jesus is God? And we don't actually get it from Jesus. Yeah. If you go through the Gospels and you like look at the written words of Jesus, he doesn't ever say, I am God. (laughs) The closest that he gets, I think, like he makes some allusions to the Son of God or the Son of Man in which we understand that he's talking about himself, but he doesn't like say, I am this person. Uh, he, he has a parable where he talks about uh, like landowner sending his son to talk to some like renters and like 
makes the analogy between like him being in the world and the son having been sent to talk to the folks who are working the land. But again, not saying directly, like I am not even saying I am the son of God and never saying I am God. We get that from like Paul and Paul's letters and some it's implied in the gospel of John, not in Jesus's words, but in the way that the writer talks about Jesus but like Jesus himself doesn't ever say I am God. The closest that we get most of the time is him. Uh, Pilate asks him, "Are you the Son of God?" And he says, "You said it." <laughs> like, that's not. That's not saying yes. That is just being like that. Basically, what he does in Jesus Christ Superstar, which is like, "What do you say I am?" Yeah. Okay. Let's go with that. <laughs> And Jesus does a lot of redefining himself or allowing himself to be redefined throughout the, the arc that we see in the Bible. He has the, the times where he directly asks his disciples, like, who do you think I am? Like, Peter comes to him and says, are you the Messiah? He's like, what do you think? <laughs> <laughs> and so he's asking those around him to sort of help him co-create his own definition in some ways mm. and also like reasserting other parts of his identity to folks who aren't paying attention and i'm thinking of the story of doubting thomas which happens after the resurrection so uh poor thomas like <laughs> kind of gets the short end of the stick when we talk about christianity and like the disciples but so uh after the resurrection in some versions of the story jesus appears to his disciples who are all like they have they're real scared their leader just got killed they're being oppressed by the state they all like huddle up in an apartment together and lock the door everybody except like i don't know what thomas is doing he's like out getting beer or something <laughs> someone's got <laughs> it <laughs> right. and so everybody except thomas is like huddled up in this little apartment with the door locked afraid of the police and then poof jesus is there and they're like what the heck <laughs> how did you get here and and then he disappears again and then thomas comes back with his beard and is like yo here's some beer they're like when well, jesus was just here and he's like nah you you guys are you're punking like, me i don't know hallucinating you make it you're like pulling my leg here what's going on and they're like, no I, I swear jesus is here and then like a few days later they're all together again and jesus and thomas is there this time and Jesus reappears and Thomas is like, what? <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, Jesus like pulls up his shirt and shows off his scars from where he got like speared in the side during his crucifixion. And Thomas like puts his hand in the scar to be like pokes at it to be like, are you really real? Like, are you a, a are you actually Jesus? And B are like you here? Are you a human or are you like a spirit? And and then Jesus says, like, you have seen and believed, but blessed are those who didn't see and still believed, which like is a message to the future church as it's like written. Like, here are we, the way it gets interpreted, like, we are here, I, I haven't seen Jesus, but we still, like, believe in Jesus, so, like, blessed are we. Um, and it, like, kind of gets, to, it gets interpreted as a dig at Thomas, too, but, like, he had to see the thing to believe it. <laughs> um, but there's also, there's, 
a pretty famous painting by Caravaggio oh, yeah. that has like Thomas sticking his finger in Jesus' side, right? And then it's uh, gross. Similarly, there's <laughs> right. <laughs> there's a uh, somebody did a I'm blanking on the artist's name. Somebody did a photograph like reinterpretation of that with jesus as a trans man like pulling up his shirt to show off his top surgery scars <gasps> and his like people looking at the scars in the same way which is like beautiful Whoa. and also is sort of this harkens back to the way that queer folks have to reassert our identities and um and develop our identities and community in the same way that jesus did that like uh sometimes people need more explanation than we want to give them like i need to see your scars to prove that you're really trans Mm. or like i need i need you to explain this thing to me rather than just being like who do you say i am what do you think is going on here yeah yeah or i believe you at your word for what you say you are right right yeah wow there's a lot there So Jesus was a radical espousing, you know, love and community. And it would be obviously an understatement to say that he got a lot of pushback. Um, In your work, do you ever get pushback? And if so, how do you deal with it? I mean, yes. The example that comes to mind the fastest is I uh, wrote a post for a United Methodist blog on like lgbtq inclusion a few years ago and that post got a like rebuttal post from a conservative blog which i was like (laughs) thrilled by frankly (laughs) (laughs) uh i mean i i felt at first like they were intentionally misunderstanding my argument which may be true but also the like overriding reaction that i had was like oh if i'm getting people i don't know on the internet are saying i'm wrong that means i have something worth saying yeah like it's triggering enough of a response in them that they want to refute it so i'm like pushing some buttons and i also think that when I can dialogue with people who are giving me pushback, often I try to find a way into having common ground. Uh, like I spent a lot of time in conservative Christian circles in college. And so like we can speak that same language and I also can mm-hmm. understand where they're coming from. Yeah. Um, I have a lot of empathy for people who are afraid that LGBTQ people are going to be damned forever because that's the theology that they have learned. And like, if you think that your kid is going to be like condemned to the fires of hell forever for being gay, of course you want to stop that from happening. Right. And so I come at it from that perspective of like, I see the love that you have for these people in how you're trying to love them i just like we fundamentally disagree about what that looks like and also like let's look at the impact of your theology so uh one of the things that i come back to a lot is jesus has a parable uh where he talks about the fruit of a tree and if a tree is good it will produce good fruit 
And if the tree is rotten, it will produce rotten fruit. And even if you can't like see into the tree and know if it's good or rotten, you can take the fruit and you can see what the fruit's like, and that will tell you what the tree is like. And so if your theology is producing love and connection and empowerment in people, that's good theology. If your theology is causing people to uh, contemplate suicide or to leave community or to feel rejected or to be afraid, Mm. that's rotten theology. Yeah. And, and then how do we get into good theology? How do we get into a place of like love and community from the fear that comes from this anti-queer theology? Yeah. So people often tell me that religion and science don't really mix. And here on Cosmologies, that we don't believe that. Um, I'm of the opinion that it doesn't have to be that way. But I do understand where they're coming from because the scientific revolution really happened while Christianity was you know, in power. And there's a long history of various church powers suppressing science that doesn't serve them. Um, so I'm wondering if you have any wisdom to share on this topic. Yeah, I think, I mean, I am of the same mind as you are, that religion and science are not mutually exclusive. And to my mind, religion and science are asking similar questions, but with different purposes. And that means they sometimes get different answers. Yeah. And that makes them feel like their intention. So, for example... Both religion and science ask the question, like, how do we respond to the phenomena that we see around us? Like, let's take a a particularly large hurricane as an example. Yeah. Science says, like, what's going on here? And how should we react to it to stop this happening again in the future? Religion asks the same question. What's going on here? And if the answer is the divine sent a hurricane, then how do we like respond and stop this happening in the future? So science comes up with climate change is a thing, which is making storms <laughs> worse, and we need to curb our greenhouse gas emissions to mitigate the effects of climate change. And religion might come up with something like, God is mad at the US because we are okay with gay people and we need to repent. <laughs> And fundamentally, if you take out the, like, because we're okay with gay people, I don't think those are in conflict. (laughs) Climate change is something that we need to change, like, we need to mitigate the effects of climate change. And repentance could be part of that. Uh Uh-huh. So it's just looking at the same thing from two different places, and we can use the two to inform our responses. Like, there is a way in which maybe bringing some elements of repentance and forgiveness and that kind of turning back to a more right relationship with each other and with the world yeah. that religion can bring will help us in mitigating climate change. And also we use science to say like, okay, something's going on in the world that doesn't seem right. And we need to repent somehow what's going on in the world that doesn't seem right. 
oh, science is telling us we're like messing up the planet. <laughs> like, let's put those two things together. Right. And also, I think that there's a lot more back and forth between science and religion than anybody wants to admit. Uh, because especially living in uh, traditionally Christian cultures, a lot of our worldview is impacted by Christianity. Yeah. We've talked about this a little bit already, but that like, so if you go back to the time of Jesus and you look at how some rabbis and Christian or in Jewish thinkers were thinking about gender, they recognized six different genders, um, which please tell me more about that. <laughs> yeah. So they were related to physical anatomy and also your ability to reproduce. Okay. So you have like a gender that is like physical anatomy would be assigned female can reproduce another physical uh, anatomy assigned male can reproduce physical anatomy would be assigned male, but can't reproduce mm -hmm. physical anatomy is kind of weird. We don't know what to do with this. <laughs> there are, like, things like yeah. that. So you have a few different varieties of gender. And then you get this Christian thread. Again, we're back to dualism that brings in from Greek philosophy, like there are men and women and men are smart and rational and women are like real tuned into their bodies and not so rational. And <laughs> you get this, this gender binary that comes in from Greek philosophy and also gets imposed on Christianity. Right. And then you carry this gender binary through hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years and then science goes out into the natural world and looks at biology and says, well, there's two genders. There's, there's like two sexes. There's man, male and female. And we're going to look at the animal world with the gender binary lens, which is not at all how the animal world works. Right. <laughs> but, but then you have like decades of biologists who write off like other gendered creatures or ignore like like sunfish have three different male genders uh, so it's like related to uh like appearance and behavior so not sexes but genders so like you have if you look at fish generally you have one sort of appearance for male fish and one sort of appearance for female fish that might be related to size or coloring or and also behavior and in sunfish, you have three different, like, male-sexed versions that have different sizes and different colorings, and that also behave differently. Wow. So you could think of that as three different genders of male. But scientists historically haven't thought of it as three different genders of male. They just think of it as, like, the weird little guys and the big guys, <laughs> right? And because we're so trained through this Christian lens to look at things with a gender binary. Yeah. And then of course that like reinforces then we are not reporting on the gender and sex diversity in the animal world, which means that then Christians can say, well, like clearly homophobia is unnatural because there aren't gay animals because we haven't noticed it. And we get this feedback loop. Right. Where each of them are informing each other. And that's, I think that's one of the reasons that, I'm really interested in expanding religious conversation beyond just like the church because it's already out there. We are already all in the U S looking at things to an extent with a Christian worldview 
sort of imposed on us in politics and in just the way that we go about our lives Mm -hmm. and the way that our society is set up. So let's like talk about that. Let's like make this connection clearer and then figure out what we want to do about it. (laughs) Totally. Whether we want to keep it around, maybe not. Um, Like if we decide that the words that we're using um, are historically gendered and, and religiously, you know, impacted and those words aren't necessarily the most descriptive words um, or they don't necessarily bring to mind the things that we need them to bring to mind when we're speaking about, you know, animal biology. Wh- how do we how do we change them? Which are the ones that we change? What do we change them to? And, you know, how does this serve us? And then once that science becomes more widespread, how does that um, then continue to impact the way that we are changing our worldview? I think there's also something to be said for uh, looking at the ways that white supremacy and Christianity have had sort of a similar feedback loop oh, yes. in the U.S. So the way, like, dualism is a real strong um, notion in Christianity, and it carries over to white supremacy, where you have this idea that, like, there's one right way, and that the rational way is the best way, and and then that, like, reinserts itself back into Christianity and strengthens this, like emphasis on the written word and dualism and like mm-hmm. mind body separation that we get in Christianity. They just like feed each other constantly. And we need to like wrestle with white supremacy's influence in Christianity and also Christianity's influence in society that creates this feedback loop. Yeah, absolutely. Oof. I, I want to react to your oof. <laughs> Uh, because <laughs> what I'm what I'm seeing and hearing in that is this like there are no easy answers <laughs> in this, uh, which is true. And another way that I think queerness can inform, because queerness is all about like not having easy answers and not looking at it in a binary. Like, how do we queer the desire for easy answers? How do we like say hmm, this is all messy and like nobody fits into an easy box and that's like good and if it was easy then we'd be losing something yeah that to me in this moment is speaking specifically to the idea of you know intersectionality that things can be many things and the more aware of the many things that things can be the better it is for everybody involved the oof is also because, man, there's a lot to dismantle. <laughs> <laughs> there's so much to dismantle. <laughs> so much to speak about. Um, I don't have any research prepared today on specifically, like, you know, Christianity and white supremacy. So I don't have anything to add to that. But, you know, anybody who knows a little bit about religion can tell you that, like, I mean, Jesus probably wasn't white and he's usually portrayed that way. And that's probably a thing that comes out of, you know, all kinds of things that happened probably in the Middle Ages or something. Yeah, I mean, the the association of Christianity with empire happens pretty quickly. Yes. And hierophant in general, emperor mm-hmm. energies. <laughs> yes, yeah. And, but Christianity's original iteration was as resistance to empire. Right. 
if your folks are interested in learning more about white supremacy and Christianity and how those two intertwine, I would highly recommend the Reclaiming Our Theology podcast, Ooh. Uh, which is pretty Christian centered, but is real good. Okay, perfect. I am going to be putting links in the show notes to everything that is recommended here today. So when I listen back through, we'll make sure that we get that on there. Great. People who definitely have a little bit more research and resource to talk to that than than I do. <laughs> okay. So if you could say anything to the queer kids and adults out there who gave up on religion because they felt, you know, unwanted or unwelcome, what would you say? I mean, the first and most important thing is that you are beloved, that the rotten theology that Christianity gives us is not true. And if you want to find your way back to Christianity, that there are parts of the church that are queer inclusive and are working on how uh, Christianity and queer folks can not only coexist, but learn from each other and the real beauty that queer folks can bring to the church. And the church has done a lot of harm and sometimes it's easiest to find your own spiritual path. Uh, what I'm reading braiding sweetgrass. I right love now. that book. So it's much. so good. I'm I, like fine. I've been like trying to get it from the library forever and, and everybody else else is always checking it out, but I finally got it. <laughs> <laughs> and there is a moment that she describes of uh, her father going camping and he every morning would make coffee and pour it out uh the, the first little bit of coffee pour it out onto the ground and say uh here's to the gods of tahawas or wherever they were at the time and he didn't have any of the like indigenous language he didn't know the rituals that his people came from to honor the the spirits around him or the divine around him so he kind of made up his own, which I also like the part of the story where the ritual started because they didn't have a filter for their coffee mug. Yeah. And so they had to pour out the first little bit to like get the grounds out of the spout. <laughs> and, and then it became the spiritual ritual from this like thing you got to do becomes spiritual ritual. Yeah. And I think there's room for that in any spiritual exploration that if the the traditions that you have been brought up with don't work for you or you can't find your way in then you can take what is in your life already and turn it into a moment of connection with the divine or with the spirit around us yeah because ultimately you know that's your relationship and that's the important thing I love that. And I love the reference back to the book. It's one of my like top, if I had to build a uh, spiritual bookshelf, it would be in my top three books to put on there. <laughs> so good. And as we think about folks who have felt like maybe disconnected to religion or chased out of religion because they don't see themselves there, that's another part of this rotten theology that like LGBTQ people are in all of our religious tradition like back all the way back to the very beginning and joseph and his family 
are a great example of that. So we have the narrative of Joseph, one of the quote unquote patriarchs of the Hebrew Bible. Um, and the one of the people who like from which the nation of Israel or the iteration of the Israelites comes. So we have uh, Joseph's father, Jacob, um, who's with Abraham and then Abraham's son, Isaac, and then Isaac's son, Jacob. Isaac has Jacob and Esau. And Esau is described as this like big, burly, hairy dude who likes to go hunting. And Jacob is described as the guy who likes to hang out in the tents with the women. So already you have this like sort of queer person who's like rejecting the expressions of masculinity that Esau embodies and is like hanging out in the tents and doing kind of feminine stuff. And we get from there, then like Esau comes back one day and is like, I'm real hungry. Give me some of that soup you're cooking. So like Jacob's cooking soup. He's like doing sort of women-ish work. And then Esau sells his birthright. So we have Jacob, who is like a kind of queer figure. And then we have um, Jacob, one of Jacob's kids, Joseph. So Jacob has a, a bunch of uh, wives and other women that he has kids with. and But he has a favorite wife, Rachel. And Rachel herself is also a little bit um, queer. She He meets her because she's out like herding sheep she's she's she is not in the tents with the women doing women's work she's out in the country <laughs> herding sheep and so we got this like dude who likes to hang out in the tents and this woman who's out in the wilderness and they get together and they like really like each other <laughs> and um there's and then rachel doesn't have kids for a really long time there is an interpretation of the story of Jacob's family wherein uh, Leah, who's his first wife that he doesn't really want to get married to, Leah is Rachel's older sister. And so their dad is like, I got to marry off the older one first. I can't marry off the younger one. So he tricks Jacob into like, Jacob thinks he's marrying Rachel and Leah like wears a veil on their wedding and then they get back to the tent and he like takes off the veil and realizes that it's in fact not the person that he thought he was marrying. Dun, dun, dun. Um, <laughs> and, but so Leah and uh, then two servants that are also um, people that Jacob has kids with, uh, they all have a bunch of boys and Rachel doesn't have any kids for a really long time. And there's an interpretation a midrash which is like a imaginative interpretation of scripture in the jewish tradition there's a midrash that says uh after they'd all had a bunch of boys they had like 10 boys or 10 or 11 boys at this point and leah gets pregnant again and she like senses that it's going to be a boy and either she praise to god or rachel prays to god or like all of them together pray and they say like rachel hasn't had any boys yet she doesn't have any kids if we keep popping out dudes she's not going to have any inheritance whatsoever so let this one be a, a girl and god changes the sex of the baby in the gen in the womb so that it's a girl and that's uh dina who's one of jacob's family so we have like queer dude <laughs> queer coded dude queer coded woman 
Now a baby whose sex has changed in the womb. And then, <laughs> and then Rachel finally gets pregnant. Uh, and her first kid is named Joseph, who folks might be familiar with from the musical Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. You know I am. <laughs> <laughs> I know you are. And um, You know that's the way I'm familiar. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> and... Then we have this, the narrative of the Technicolor Dreamcoat, where uh, Joseph or Jacob really, really likes Joseph because it's explained that it's because it's Rachel's kid and like Rachel is his favorite. Um, and he gives Joseph a garment. Now, one of the weird, complicated things about reading a scripture in translation, especially scripture that was written a real long time ago is that we don't know what all the words mean because ancient Hebrew and modern Hebrew aren't exactly the same. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes you have to kind of infer what the meaning of a word or phrase is based on what's going on and if it occurs any other times in the Hebrew scriptures. And in this particular case, the word that gets translated uh, like coat of many colors or technical or dream coat. Depending <laughs> on whether you're in the is, 70s or not. Right, right, exactly. Uh, is a phrase that occurs exactly twice in the Bible that we don't know what it means. And the other time that it occurs is in the story of David's family. So King David has a bunch of kids. Uh, his son rapes his daughter and his daughter wants to like go goes to her dad to be like this just happened you got to take some action against your son and as she's preparing to do that she puts on this garment which we don't know what it means and the explanation is she puts on this garment because it was what the daughters of the king wore oh the only thing we have to understand what this garment is or what it might look like is because it is what the daughters of the king wore. I see. So possibly a princess dress. <laughs> <laughs> and then if we reinterpret that back into the, the story of Joseph. So Jacob gives his favorite kid, the child of his queer coded wife. <laughs> A garment that is what the daughters of the king wear. And then all the brothers are like, you can't give him that. What are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> Which makes their response, frankly, make a lot more sense. Yeah. And then they take him out into the desert and they beat him up. Which also makes a lot of sense. Oof. If we're reading Joseph as like a queer or possibly trans kid. And then he has a bunch of other things in his narrative that are like kind of queer also right like, so he goes to gets taken away to egypt he has an encounter where uh he's the wife of the man he's working for tries to seduce him and he's yeah. like nah dude i don't want to do that <laughs> like which maybe he's gay <laughs> and then he ends up like rising through the ranks in egypt and eventually his brothers meet up with him again while he's in power and they don't recognize him oh yeah uh-huh because he looks so different than how they were used to seeing him 
Oh, wow. <laughs> Which if you then like, you can reinterpret a bunch of trans stuff on there and say like, maybe this is like jo- the, a fuller expression of who Joseph is, mm-hmm. who's like femme enough or transitioned in such a way that their brothers don't recognize them anymore. And it makes, to me, it makes the Joseph story make a lot more sense instead of just being a bunch of like, well, that that happened to him and then that happened to him and that happened to sort of disjointed. But if you put the queer through line, it tells a more complete narrative. Now, we have no idea if that is there or not, or if that's like how the original writers of the story intended for it to be interpreted, because we don't have any of that information. Right. But I think we can be confident in saying that Jacob, Rachel, Joseph, possibly Dina, depending on how you read that midrash, are like queer coded people in the Bible that like there's something going on that breaks gender binaries in this family, which is Jacob gets renamed to Israel and is the like Uh patriarch of the Israelites who become the Jews from whence jesus comes wow (laughs) so there's this kind of stuff woven all throughout Mm -hmm. if you look for it and if you're if you're open to it being something maybe a little bit different than what you've always been told it is and and not not even necessarily interpreting that like oh well what's written is wrong it's more like well what's written is this and there's a lot of different things that you could take away from it. Yeah. And I mean, we have the challenge of reading things in translation. Right. And also with reading things with like, in this particular case, something like 3000 years of interpretation mm-hmm. put on top of it and, and our own cultural lenses, which don't line up with the cultural lenses of the original writers. Oh, for sure. And so it can be hard to find those like nuggets of where folks are breaking expectations, partially because like we read a story about like Jacob hanging out in tents and cooking and that doesn't mean anything to us gender wise anymore. Right. Like a person who lives in a tent or like hangs out in the tents that isn't female coded to us. Yeah, definitely not anymore. But it like would have been to the original writers. Yeah, perhaps. I mean, we we can think that maybe maybe it was. I mean, we have enough knowledge of culture that we yeah. can be pretty confident that some of that language is saying like Jacob is doing stereotypically feminine things and Esau is doing stereotypically masculine things. And whether that means Jacob is queer in any sort of way, that we can't say because conceptions and ways of talking about queerness at the time were like totally different from ours. But we can say with some confidence that like, this is not what we would expect from traditional masculine behavior. Totally. So we're, we're drawing near kind of the end here. Do you have any parting words of wisdom? I mean, I guess I'm I'm struggling with this question because my parting words of wisdom are very different depending on the audience, mm. right? Like, yes, uh, reiterating the belovedness of queer folks makes way more sense to a Christian audience, which I th- suspect is not 
largely your audience. I don't um, even know who my audience is right now. <laughs> We're so new. I'm hoping that we can, um, you know, take this link and, and pass it around and be like, hey, look, an episode that's not about gods. <laughs> or it is, but it's not about, you know, <laughs> pagan <laughs> shit. <laughs> yeah, I guess then my, my final thoughts are just that the as we were talking about earlier that there's this perceived gap between like religion and science there's also a perceived tension between queerness and christianity that doesn't have to be there that queer folks have existed since the very beginning of our religious tradition and have been woven throughout and that god doesn't hate queer folks so there's a lot that's happened to sort of reconcile those two. There are some cool books and podcasts that we can link in the show notes. Yes. And, um, and also, like, Christianity understands that this whole world is God's creation, which means that so is queerness. And this perceived gap between queerness and Christianity hasn't existed for a good chunk of the church's history and certainly doesn't have to exist now. Can you tell us about it not existing for that chunk? So, I mean, for one thing, like understandings of queerness and have changed a lot in the last 200, 300 years. Mm -hmm. And that there are, there's some evidence of like, same-sex marriages being performed in the early church oh and a lot of conversations about like gender and what we might think of as queerness have very very different overtones in like the middle ages Mm -hmm. it's much more like cultural and less christian right um it's you know men and women have different places in society more than like god dictates that men can't have sex with men or whatever and in fact the the a lot of the texts in what are called the like clobber texts or clobber passages that are used to sort of say that like god thinks homosexuality is sinful um many of those didn't get understood as being about homosexuality until like the 1920s really when there's a or even later there was a translation and in the mid 1900s that translates a word as homosexuality for the first time and like that starts changing people's interpretations of homosexuality and again we see that christianity and culture are linked in that maybe it was 1946 was the translation that came out and so culturally there are a lot of conversations happening about homosexuality in the like 1920s 30s 40s and the Mm -hmm. like homosexuality is becoming at that time a word that the average person would know in a way that it wasn't in like 1880 whatever and so you could use that word and expect that people would know what you mean and also Bible translators are more likely to be thinking about homosexuality at all because of cultural things that are happening. 
like as in the 40s you see the u.s army trying to get rid of homosexuality homosexuals in like the ranks unsuccessfully because we were in the middle of a war and there were <laughs> some like lesbians who were like if you get rid of the lesbians there will be no women left (laughs) 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 there's some like great stories about like queer resistance to that in the military but you also have the military like wrestling with what do we do with gay people in our ranks and as that cultural conversation is happening then there's a new translation of the bible and the translators of the bible are influenced by the cultural conversation i see you look at this word that has historically been translated to things like effeminate and you know other sort of queer coded ish language and they like see that translation and they say like oh well effeminate is homosexual and so then they translate the word as homosexuality and then the church suddenly has to like deal with the fact that paul said homosexuality was bad which up until 1946, Paul had not said that homosexuality was bad. (laughs) (laughs) And so like translations and cultural narratives have really shifted how we've looked at homosexuality in the church. So that's not, it's not a constant in Christian theology by any means. So like some of those texts are interpreted through the lens of that translation. Um, that like Sodom and Gomorrah that story for up until the 1940s was not understood to be about homosexuality there's like I would say there's one text that to me still feels like it says you can't have you can't be homosexual you can't have gay sex Mm. and that's the one in Leviticus which says uh you should not lie with a man as you would with a woman for that is an abomination. Um, and that's like the most literal translation. And that like seems to pretty clearly say gay male sex is not okay. Um, or is an abomination. But then if you frame that into the way that Leviticus talks about abominations, it doesn't actually mean like inherently sinful right leviticus uses abomination to say this is something that's out of its right place and so then if you reinterpret that culturally then what it's saying is that having penetrative sex with a man is out of its right place is doing something not in the way that it should be done and you also can put in the uh the frame that the sort of penetrative male male sex that was culturally known about or talked about most frequently was raping one's enemies after you've beat them in battle so you could interpret that to say you shouldn't rape people after you've defeated them go figure because that's like <laughs> that's an abomination yeah i would maybe agree with that yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's also something really interesting that happens in leviticus where um and this is like reading into queer interpretations a little bit um 
there are certain fabrics that you're not supposed to have in the same cloth. Right. So, right. You, this is sort of one of the rebuttals to that passage is like Leviticus also tells us not to eat shrimp and not to have mixed fabric cloth, but we like wear polyester cotton blends and we eat <laughs> shrimp. So like, which of these laws are we keeping and which are we getting rid of, which I think is also a valid part of the conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, and when Moses is quote unquote given the rules for how to set up the temple, the priest's garments have mixed fabric cloth like very intentionally have mixed fabric cloth. And so one interpretation is that the average person isn't allowed to have mixed fabric cloth because that's a holy thing. And the bit about mixed fabric cloth is in the same like section of Leviticus as the bit about not having gay sex. So you could also interpret it to say the average person shouldn't have gay sex because that's like not for them (laughs) (laughs) so there's nuance that again we lose because we're looking at things through a different cultural lens and so we're not seeing everything that's going on and we're looking at it through translation which is some of the difficulty like frankly with having a millennia old religion is like what if what if what if the original are we keeping? What do we mm-hmm. want to keep? And how do we reinterpret this tradition in our modern era? I think it's a mistake to try to keep everything, both because we can't, like culturally, linguistically, we're so different, like don't even know what's happening half the time. <laughs> and, yeah. and it's also a mistake to just throw all that out and try to start afresh like we have millennia of tradition of people understanding the divine which we then have to put in conversation with our current experience of the divine right yeah i think that is a really great kind of note to tie this episode kind of together is that we prior to our conversation have been speaking about um you know the age of Pisces and how it's been happening for a long time and how we're moving into at least some point in the future, we will eventually move into the, what has been kind of portrayed as an age of, you know, the age of Aquarius. <laughs> All, the world is, you know, forecasted to change, etc. And it, the thing is that it's always changing always. And, um, you know, I'm not going to, I can honor my, ancestors in the way that they lived their life without doing all the same things that they would do like i have a microwave and that's great (laughs) but you know because microwaves aren't on the back in the bible does that mean that i shouldn't be using them like no that's just you know we we have to always it's a conversation i think of of what still serves us um as people and you know I guess when it comes to specifically book-based religions, it gets a little bit harder because it's like, you know, this is the word. And, you know, if you add extra words, they don't count. And if they're, if you don't, you know, use these words, then you're not right. And 
I think to to a certain extent, there's always probably going to be a stigma around like this isn't the exact way that it was practiced, the way that it was come up with. But like we're never going to be in the exact same place that we were practicing those things. So um, just taking into the into the plunging into the 21st century even further, I think it's going to be increasingly important that we you know, put these texts under scrutiny and that we do interpret them according to ourselves, even if that makes some people angry. <laughs> and and also, you know, continuing to go back to these or original words that we can find. No, I think that's a good uh, a good closing thought. Thank you. Okay. Well then to to do our very final closing thought. Do you have any recommendations of any other books or resources? And we've talked about a few, um, and I'll be hitting you up for those. But for learning more about uh, queer Christianity or any of this, and of course, we'll be plugging your blog as well. Sure. So um, my favorite book on the topic is called Queer Virtue, What LGBTQ People Know About Life and Love and How It Can Revitalize Christianity by the Reverend Liz Edmond. It's so good. Highly recommend. And then I mentioned my friends over at queertheology.com. They have a podcast and a bunch of resources on their website. And those are sort of the the big heavy hitters. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I learned so much. I always learn so much from you. (laughs) But it's nice to finally capture one of these conversations that we've had. (laughs) (laughs) My pleasure. Always good to talk with you. All right, everyone. That's about it for this month. Mac and I want to wish you a happy post-Easter. And I'm excited to tell you that next month, we're going to be talking all about neuroscience and the tarot with Dr. Siddharth Ramakrishnan. So make sure you're following if that appeals to you. One last thing for this month. I love writing these episodes I really love interviewing these guests, and I guess editing's all right. But I'll admit that my Achilles heel as a single producer is internet marketing. It's really hard to do all of these jobs and to also have a full-time job, especially when the internet is trying to turn every artist into a content creator and, you know, flooding algorithms and all that. So I want to ask you a huge favor. If you liked this episode and feel like more people might like this intersection of astronomy, mythology, history, and more, please give this tiny pod a like, write a review, or even better, share it with someone you think might really dig it. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to Cosmologies on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeart, or our host platform, SoundCloud. And you can always follow Cosmologies on Instagram at Cosmologies Channel, which I try to update and am way better at updating than our Twitter. Again, that's my Achilles heel. Anyway, I can't wait to have you next month. Until then, stay wonderful. From the mysteries within us to the-